Welcome back to New Books in Military History. This is your host, Bob Wintermute. As a rule, campaign narratives of the Pacific War generally take on a very Americentric cast, particularly those detailing the course of the war after the end of the Guadalcanal campaign in 1943. When it comes to detailing operational initiatives in the Marianas and Philippine Sea, many writers all too often fall back upon a conventional narrative approach, emphasizing combat and its outcome on the Japanese Navy without deeply probing their own strategic planning and implementation. No one can accuse our guest today, John Prados, of taking shortcuts or ignoring the Japanese perspective. His latest book, Storm Over Leyte, The Philippine Invasion and the Destruction of the Japanese Navy, is but one of many examples of his skills as a researcher with a gift for prose. Drawing upon a very wide range of sources, including many hitherto unseen Japanese primary documents, memoirs, and interviews, Prados unveils one of the most comprehensive comparative treatments of this controversial campaign. Readers really shouldn't be surprised. I mean, after all, John is a well-respected author whose books, including Vietnam, The History of an Unwinnable War, 1945-1975, Keeper of the Keys, and Combined Fleet Decoded, were all Pulitzer Prize nominees. He's also a senior research fellow at the National Security Archive, where he directs both the Iraq Documentation Project and the Vietnam Documentation Project. It's a great pleasure to welcome John to New Books in Military History. Hi, it's a pleasure to be here, and, and thank you for that introduction. Very nice. You're, you're quite welcome, John. Let's, let's get started. How did you come to this specific campaign? Well, I had previously done a book called uh, Islands of Destiny, uh, which in fact is about the Guadalcanal and the Solomon's campaign. And, uh, I argued there that, uh, the Japanese started out in a roughly, uh, w- with a rough equivalence to, uh, the Americans and the Allied forces in the South Pacific, but that by the end of 1943, the combination of Allied intelligence advantage and um, Japanese attrition had reversed the situation to such a degree that the Japanese were no longer able to effectively damage Allied power. So, as it happens, uh, the Japanese understood this and I wanted to make that argument. And they substituted careful planning and uh, a determination to get through for the kinds of uh, tactical superiority or advantages that they had had early in the war. And the two uh, primary exemplars of that revised approach both occurred in 1944, one being the Battle of the Philippine Sea, the other being uh, the Battle of Leyte Gulf. At the Philippine Sea now, uh, the Japanese learned the lesson that even with a careful plan, you could not necessarily affect Allied military operations. So, they revised their plan again and inserted an element of inevitability, inserted an element of um, uh, what basically came to be suicide tactics, uh, except that they were not at that point uh, called that or known as that or thought of in that way. But they were... Uh, uh, institutionalized in the sense that the Imperial Navy was going to fight the next battle uh, to the maximum and come what may see what would happen. So Storm Over Leyte demonstrates how that unfolded, beginning with the horrors for the Japanese of losing at the Marianas and moving through their preparations for the next great battle, and then the onset of that battle, and what happened. Okay, okay. Well, you know, let, let's go directly to his methodology and sources. Um, Stolo Relate takes on a, a fresh perspective, I think, in that 
you're looking at this really from the view of the intelligence community being front and center on both sides of the conflict, in addition to the planning staff uh, on both sides. Leaving aside your immediate affiliation with National Security Archive, was there anything in particular that drove you to really adopt this lens for so much of the book because it hasn't been told or... Yes, both of those things are part of it. Um, this actually goes back uh, maybe half a decade or so uh, where I was asked to um, comment for a, a book on uh, the historiography of uh, literature on World War II, historical literature on World War II. And, and the, the editor of that book wanted each of the uh, the people to talk about uh, what was the what did they think was the next great challenge for the historiography? You know, what should be the new history, and what should it look like? And I was looking at that and thinking, well, you know, it's been um, not that long since uh, the code-breaking material came out, the ultra secret, and whatnot, and uh, uh, from the 80s into the early 90s. Uh, the actual code-breaking materials came out, and uh, we had all of these campaign histories of World War II where there was a kind of a, a fuzzy understanding that intelligence had something to do with what happened, but there was no um, explicit or detailed understanding of what actually intelligence had contributed to campaign histories. So I set out... Uh, to uh, remedy that and to give examples of how you could do it. And, in fact, uh, Storm Over Leyte is my third shot at this. I did a book I did a book on the Normandy campaign, Normandy Crucible, that was about the Allied breakout from Normandy and put the intelligence into the Normandy campaign. And I flipped over to the Pacific and Islands of Destiny was the second one of these. And it was... Uh, uh, the intelligence was so key in that South Pacific campaign because the Allies were on a shoestring, the Japanese were tremendously powerful, and it was the Japanese war to lose. And in the South Pacific, they went a considerable distance toward losing it with the intelligence uh, on the Allied side really as the, the wedge uh, into that situation. Well, uh, here, Storm Over Leyte, intelligence is still important, and I'm still following that perspective, putting the intelligence back into the campaign history. And I think it gives us some important insights into what happened, although you have to say that by 1944, with the uh, tremendous growth in Allied military potential and power, uh, the intelligence is relatively less important. Right. Right. That itself does play quite a role. Yes, it does. In particular, with respect to the Japanese Air Force, um, in the sort of rarefied uh, back halls of Allied intelligence in 1944, there was a big dispute about how do you count the Japanese Air Force and what uh, power do you attribute to it. And uh, they had a fight, actually, a bureaucratic fight, over counting Japanese air groups and whether training groups should be counted among uh, combat air groups or not. And uh, this actually assumes great importance in this book because one of the things that happens here is that Bill Halsey's third fleet uh, mounts a huge carrier raid against uh, Formosa, Taiwan, and um, all of these air groups that are part of the Japanese air training organization, they rise to fight uh, his incoming airplanes. The Americans were surprised at how many airplanes the Japanese put up into the air in over over uh, Taiwan, and the big reason is because these training groups functioned as combat air groups. In U.S. intelligence now, the guys who didn't want to uh, count the training air groups were the ones who won that particular bureaucratic battle. So. Uh, 
come the air battle over Formosa, uh, they had a bit of egg on their faces. Right, right. You know, it's, w- one of the things I enjoyed about the book uh, is that you also make a firm case of acknowledging and fitting in the work of other historians who've written on the Pacific War. Uh, I'm thinking of people like Gordon Prang, Samuel Elliott Morrison, Richard Frank, Paul Dahl. Most importantly, you, you give a, more than a, a nod to John Toland, which is interesting. I mean, in recent years, Toland's fallen into some disfavor, I think, among historians because of his narrative style and some may say his, his use, selective use of sources. But you give him more credit than that, right? Absolutely. I think uh, it's not possible to be an American historian working on the Pacific War without uh, paying careful attention to Collins' work. Um, I will uh, agree that Collins got himself into a uh, uh, kind of a mess with the the argument over Pearl Harbor and the whole question of uh, the winds codes and whether or not we knew that the Japanese were moving across the North Pacific to attack uh, uh, the United States. However, um, Collins' work before then, um, you know, is really central, I think, to uh, an understanding of the Pacific War for two reasons. One, because he did the bulk of this research during a chronological period, the 1960s, when many of the actors in these events were still alive. And number two, he made a a concerted effort to uh, uh, material uh, and preserve it. And that material is now available to historians. So um, it's an absolutely necessary foundation for uh, uh, work on the Pacific War. Yeah, and I think it's a good lesson for anybody who aspires to write their own works in the future, be they professional historians or uh, professional writers who don't have a, a, you know advanced degrees in history, that you can't discount earlier works on face value. You really have to look at, at their research and, and make that fit or, or accommodate that research in your own outlook. And I think that's true. Yes, indeed. I agree. So, well, let's turn to the book itself. And we're, we're going to start with um, the planning summit at Pearl Harbor, which is you know, where you begin. And several accounts point towards the friction within senior American leadership, particularly between Chester Nimitz, Douglas MacArthur, and FDR. Was this a serious factor going into the planning for the return to the Philippines? I don't think, uh, don't get me wrong, I'm not casting Chester Nimitz as uh, the the one pole of uh, a disagreement among the the Americans. Really, this disagreement is between uh, Douglas MacArthur on the one hand and the Washington High Command on the other. Chester Nimitz is someone who's sort of caught in the middle of this. But uh, uh, Admiral Ernest King, the Commander-in-Chief of the U.S. Navy, and the Joint Chiefs of Staff, to a lesser degree, uh, are uh, the ones who are at the other pole here. And the question is a question of uh, uh, how to end the war without making it necessary to invade Japan. Mm-hmm. And that means, essentially, how do you mount an effective blockade of Japan? And um, uh, from the standpoint of strategy, looking at this in Washington, the Joint Chiefs of Staff and Admiral King in particular are in favor of an invasion of Taiwan, that is Formosa in those days. Right. And um, if you look at the... Uh, sort of strategic and geographical position of Formosa and the the standard ranges of aircraft and whatnot, 
and the the wherewithal necessary to implement a blockade of the Japanese home islands, which are so dependent on outside uh, imports for their uh, uh, economy. Okay, uh, indeed, you can make an excellent case for Formosa. Um, there are in this book a set of maps. Uh, that show, in fact, uh, quite clearly, quite graphically, how uh, Formosa as a position from which to blockade Japan is superior to the Philippines. Mm-hmm. Now, MacArthur, uh, he argued the opposite. He argued that uh, the Philippines were uh, a perfect position from which to ensure a blockade of Japan. Um, and that, by the way, uh, a campaign to conquer the Philippines would not be that uh, difficult, that it would not entail so many American losses, that it would be relatively rapid. Now, that's not actually the way that history turned out. You know, uh, American and Allied forces were still fighting in the Philippine Islands on the day that the war ended. Yes. So the campaign in the Philippines had not, in fact, ended at that point. And uh, the blockade of Japan wasn't perfected by the capture of the Philippines. It had to be enforced with uh, uh, carrier strikes into the South China Sea, in fact, by Bill Halsey in early 1945, and ones against the Japanese home islands themselves. So... Um, MacArthur's strategic idea didn't actually work out that well, and um, that whole argument gets pointed and started at this uh, conference in Pearl Harbor, which occurs in the summer of 1944. So the Allies are at the point of making this strategic decision of which way to go next, Formosa versus Philippines, and uh, uh, MacArthur is still uh, arguing for the Philippines, and uh, in Washington, Admiral King is arguing for Taiwan, and uh, needling General Marshall and the other Joint Chiefs to go along with him on that idea. Uh, Admiral Leahy, who was the chairman of the Joint Chiefs and also uh, FDR's main military advisor, he was uh, torn uh, between both um, approaches, but he was the one of them who was the most interested in avoiding the necessity for an invasion of the home islands. Mm-hmm. In any case... Um, the president, FDR, Franklin Roosevelt, understands that this decision needs to be made. Uh, he understands also that it's going to be a critical thing in terms of the evolution of um, um, strategy in the Pacific. And uh, he understands that uh, General MacArthur has political slash uh, bureaucratic interests apart from uh, the uh, basic strategy issue of where to invade next. Mm -hmm. Because, of course, MacArthur had political involvement in the Philippines before World War II began, and in that initial campaign of the war, he did indeed promise to return to the Philippines, and he had, and FDR knew he had, political ambitions in American politics. So FDR's problem was to sort of square the circle. How do we accommodate the general and his uh, strategic vision as a mechanism for, um, you know, taking care of the strategy issue in the Pacific? Uh, And that's what FDR decides to do. I argue in the book that uh, uh, this is one of the very few times in all of World War II that Franklin Roosevelt, as president, takes a direct hand in a military decision. Mm -hmm. This is unlike 
his his compatriots, Joseph Stalin or Winston Churchill, who were constantly involved in all kinds of military decisions, or for that matter, Adolf Hitler. Um, But FDR is serious about doing it. You know, he schedules this trip at the same time as he sets up a trip to go see Winston Churchill at a summit conference. He cancels the visit to go see Churchill, but he keeps the visit to go see MacArthur and get him together with him at Pearl Harbor. Right. Right. And it's not an insignificant trip for FDR at this point either. I mean, he's not a well man at this point. That's correct. He did not fly, so... uh, uh, this trip required him to take a train across the entire United States and take a boat from the U.S. West Coast to Hawaii and then back again. So for FDR, at the height of World War II, this represented a time commitment of an entire month. Well, if anything, the friction on the Japanese side appears to be even more serious. You know, and this is not just limited to the usual squabbling that we see between the Imperial Army General Staff and the Imperial Navy. How how much of a factor is this friction on the Japanese side? The Japanese have a, a very different problem from the Americans, and it's actually not so much between the services, although the usual uh, problems between the Japanese armed services still persist, but within the Imperial Navy itself, mm-hmm. where uh, in the course of determining their strategy for the next great battle, the Japanese decide that they will change their objective. They will change their goal. The idea that of the decisive naval battle, which they had uh, built the Navy for and prepared the Navy for and trained for for decades, they were going to substitute um, the goal of eliminating enemy uh, amphibious transport capacity and and uh, uh, freighters uh, support uh, mechanisms for uh, the idea of eliminating enemy naval forces. That's a complete cognitive shift, though, for the admirals, yeah. It's a complete cognitive shift within uh, a a military force, a naval force that has thought uh, single-mindedly about doing this other thing for decades, and it represents such an enormous shift that uh, the uh, officers who were... um, responsible for making the change was incumbent upon them to sell the change that they were making. And that was one of the places where the Japanese uh, uh, made major errors in the build-up to Leyte Gulf. They did not devote sufficient uh, attention or effort to uh, convincing everyone else that this was the right idea. Right. Right. And of course, at the same time, you have personality shifts between Japanese flag officers who don't really like, some of them don't really get along at all, period, the way you describe it. That's correct. Um, And in fact, it comes down to, in the middle of the battle, a major tactical error uh, in the battle off Samar that's attributable, I think, in good part to these kinds of animosities, these kinds of personal animosities. You you describe the, the shift towards moving away from fleet engagement to targeting, I guess like an interdiction mode, targeting the um, the transports. Is is that all there is to the Shogo plan, or you know, are there are there other elements that we're missing here in this short recap? And was it really a plausible effort? That comes down to uh, the general strategic and uh, operational situation of the time. And the Japanese are now operating at such a disadvantage that uh, uh, you could reasonably argue that it's not a plausible effort. However, uh, within the means and the capabilities that they did possess, the Japanese had the ability to enforce a certain degree of engagement, and that's 
basically what they set out to do. And your question is a good one because no, we haven't presented a, a, a robust description of the Japanese plan. Um, let me go back to that this way. Um, by the summer of 1944, the Japanese had uh, no longer a kind of comprehensive, unified military capability or naval capability. They had uh, a strong surface fleet. They had uh, a, ver a crippled carrier force after the Mariana Sea battle in particular, uh, but they had some good land-based air capacity. However, their training establishment, their uh, um, their attritional losses, which uh, uh, crippled the Japanese air strike capability, although leaving them with large numbers of fighter and interceptor type aircraft, um, and their uh, training of air crew uh, all left their air arm in uh, a very uh, weak situation. And then their submarine force, the submarine force had been uh, greatly reduced and in large part sort of shifted over to supplying uh, far-flung bases that the Americans had bypassed and left out on a limb to kind of starve to death. Mm -hmm. So uh, at this point, the Japanese have sort of different weapons that are capable in and of themselves of accomplishing something, but are no longer capable of working as a unified whole in pursuit of a specific strategy. So what they do is they have an air weapon that they can use, they have a surface fleet that they can use, they have a submarine force that they can uh, hope to accomplish something with. And if you could um, coordinate the activities of those different weapons in time, if not in space, uh, you could get some synergistic value out of their cooperation. And that's what the show plan really was intended to do. It was intended to uh, operate the different weapons that the Japanese still had access to in such a fashion that their overall performance would get the Japanese to somewhere near where they wanted to be. Mm -hmm. Now, I argue in, in Storm Over Leyte, I argue in the book that uh, having created this, this plan uh, and, and put it into place and having carefully prepared the mechanisms, for example, there was the uh, largest uh, uh, coordinated uh, re-equipment of the surface fleet in the history of the war in terms of its uh, re-arming with anti-aircraft weapons after Philippine Sea and before Leyte Gulf and other kinds of preparations like these. Uh, the Japanese surface ships were given uh, gunnery radars for the first time uh, and so on and so forth. Um, having, having carefully planned all these different elements, uh, the Japanese then sort of rushed into the breach when the Americans made that attack on Taiwan that I mentioned earlier. Right. This idea of activating the air arm first and without respect to the surface fleet and separate from the surface fleet had the effect of using up that air weapon and using it up before they were ready to work with the surface fleet weapon. So uh, the synergistic effect they lost at that moment and uh, basically by their own uh, choice. Right. It just so happens that that uh, mistake was compounded by the argument that we were talking about a little while ago about the decisive battle and the shift in objectives and whatnot, because the uh, the chief of the Japanese fleet, the combined fleet, had gone down to the Philippines just before this Taiwan air battle starts uh, for the purpose, basically, of, uh, you know, 
building morale and, and, and supporting this idea among the subordinate commanders in the Philippines. And he's on his way back to Japan when the Taiwan air battle starts. And he is, in fact, in Taiwan, and he's caught by the air battle. So he cannot return to headquarters to command the operation. Instead, his chief of staff is the one who's left in command. And his chief of staff is an interesting character, uh, Kusaka Rinosuke, who was uh, actually Nagumo's uh, chief of staff before that of the Japanese carrier force that attacked Pearl Harbor. And he is a big uh, air enthusiast, and he wants nothing more than to activate the air arm right away, and he proceeds to do that. And the commander-in-chief of the combined fleet stuck on Taiwan is in no position to stop him. So uh, suddenly the Japanese lose the ability to avoid that mistake, and that's where the Battle of Leyte Gulf begins. It's an unenviable position to be in because you are being attacked by Halsey's you know, massive carrier air arm, looking just for that purpose to draw you out. And yet, I would imagine you're in the position as well. How do you not respond? How do you not deploy your own air assets in defense of the island? And it's, it strikes me as almost a masterstroke on Halsey's part. To what extent does Ultra allow the Americans to have that kind of foresight in leading up to the, the to the Battle of Formosa? Uh, I would say that um, the Ultra had three major. The Ultra made three major contributions during the time of the Leyte Gulf Battle, and the one that you're pointing to is one of them. This uh, ability to read the Japanese codes enabled Allied intelligence to realize that the Japanese were uh, mobilizing the air arm for a big air battle over Taiwan. Now, having said that, let me also say that um, the Japanese did, uh, as part of their extensive planning, um, conduct uh, war games in preparation for looking at um, how operations might unfold. And one of their war games, the scenario of it was, in fact, an allied attack on Taiwan. So the Japanese had actually war gamed the exact situation that occurred. That's number one. Number two, um, by the fall of 1944, a Japanese planner could understand that the Americans would precede any major amphibious invasion with a series of carrier raids ranging into the Japanese rear. So, Formosa, Taiwan, uh, the Ryukyu Islands, Japan itself, were um, places that were uh, uh, part of the apparent threat sector. Mm-hmm. Okay, and the Japanese war games showed that uh, they could maximize their effect by refusing action. In fact, even withdrawing air assets to the mainland of Asia and mm. Korea. Uh, at the beginning of uh, the Taiwan air action, if the Japanese had not moved 500 airplanes forward from the home islands to the Taiwan area and brought in another 150 from China, uh, the majority of their air assets would have still been in place. Mm. So uh, the the commitment or lack of commitment of that air arm in the Formosa battle was the key to whether the Japanese still had major air capability when the Philippine invasion actually began. Shift gears a little bit. Who were the dirty tricksters? The uh, Americans had their own thing going. And uh, the American thing was uh, very different from the Japanese. You know, the Japanese are going to implement the most uh, incredible set-piece kind of operation that you've ever seen. The Americans, uh, you know, this is a a citizen armed force, really, Mm -hmm. uh, 
uh, and it's incorporating citizens with a, a core of professional officers, long service officers, Annapolis graduates, and all the rest who've been through the war colleges, who've, who've uh, uh, steeped themselves in uh, a major naval tradition, and who suddenly have access to uh, uh, a, a naval weapon of incredible power and suppleness, uh, crewed by all these civilians who are really up to the job, who can solve problems. So the dirty tricksters are the guys who are figuring out how to make this all work. And what they do is evolve this incredible uh, sort of um, flexibility that enables them to maintain a very high operational tempo. So they have uh, a carrier task force fleet that's composed of many different task groups, each one of which is uh, as powerful as, uh, you know, the American Navy that had been at the Battle of Midway, all by itself. Um, each one of those is capable of mounting major operations. Uh, their uh, operational arrangements, uh, you know, with uh, underway replenishment groups and, and uh, uh, escort carriers that are bringing up replacement aircraft and munitions ships that are bringing up more bombs and ordnance, all with the uh, uh, intent of making it possible to keep all those task groups at sea and uh, uh, maintaining this high rate of attack. So uh, the dirty tricksters um, are the ones who are making it all happen. And by the way, while all this is going on, they have one eye cocked out for the Japanese Navy, whom they you know, passionately wish to defeat and are looking for uh, uh, to combat it at any drop of the hat. And that drop of the hat happens, actually. Uh, you know, one of the... the sort of controversies on the American side is whether the carrier fleet that Halsey has was sufficiently, um, how should we say, supportive of the uh, the Seventh Fleet, the invasion force that works for MacArthur right. and which is about to carry out the invasion of the Philippines. Well, you know, Halsey is off attacking Taiwan and one day a submarine sights some Japanese surface ships leaving harbor, and uh, Halsey interprets that as the Japanese carriers are coming out, so he's going to fight them. So when he sends news of this up the line, uh, the invasion fleet guys, the 7th Fleet, Admiral Kincaid's fleet, they complain that Halsey needs to be down there in the southern Philippines supporting the invasion. What's he doing over there fighting the Japanese? Right. And this, this kind of... Um, um, sort of division of attention uh, affects the dirty tricksters, affects Halsey himself for the duration of the battle. And the biggest controversy on the American side is fueled by the duality of uh, the intentions of hitting the Japanese carriers versus supporting the invasion. But to be fair, doesn't Nimitz give Halsey instructions that, you know, to do just what he did if confronted with a major portion of the enemy fleet? Uh, he does exactly that thing. Yes, he does. Now, there's another controversy over whether Nimitz doing that represented acquiescing to Halsey's predilections, but we'll put that issue to the side. Uh, Nimitz did, in fact, um, give Halsey an, uh, uh, a directive that gave Halsey the authority to do that. <laughs> Having said that, you know, when this happens in the moment, Right, and, and Admiral Kincaid sends messages saying, hey, where's the carrier fleet and whatnot? Nimitz orders Halsey to cease and desist. Yes. And to go down and, and help, uh, you know, execute the planned pre invasion strikes. Mm -hmm. Well, this brings us then to the invasion force itself, and then by extension, the saga of Taffy 3 which is arguably one of the more dramatic accounts, if not the most dramatic account, of American naval combat in the 20th century. 
you know, the actions of this small group of, of jeep carriers or escort carriers and destroyers facing off against Admiral Carita's battleship heavy central force. Yes, absolutely. This is one of the most dramatic, if not the most dramatic, yes, American naval story, at least of the 20th century, if not all of American naval history. Well, this this unraveling of the Japanese plan that ensues, the outcome that follows with Kurita withdrawing, regardless of the actions of Kurita's fleet against Taffy Three, in which he withdraws, is that a case of him losing his nerve, or were there other factors at play here that, that Kurita was responding to? I think that it's a combination. Uh, this is one of the central mysteries, by the way, of the Battle of Leyte Gulf. What happened with Kurita and why? Mm-hmm. And there are uh, a number of uh, arguments that... Um, go in different directions, actually. One of them is that Curita had been fighting this battle since um, early the day before, in fact, the night before that, where he was sorting from base, heading up to the Philippines, constantly on duty, constantly on watch. And um, he gets attacked first by submarines and then by airplanes and then more airplanes and then more airplanes uh, for a period of 48 hours, you know, until he arrives at this place where, exhausted as he is, suddenly he's in the middle of a naval fight. So here's a person who is at the limit of their resources. That's one piece of this puzzle. Another piece of this puzzle is the um, alleged message. All right. Now, there is a... Uh, one of the other Japanese admirals who was involved in this, uh, um, Shima, who was with the Japanese Southern Force and was part of the the uh, Surigao Strait disaster, happened to be uh, his specialty. His his uh, naval military operational specialty was communications, and uh, he investigates after the battle. There was a message that Kurita allegedly received that was uh, a reported uh, situation report, position report of an American carrier force that was over near the San Bernardino Strait and in a position where Kurita could actually engage it. And uh, um, one explanation for what Kurita did was that he turned around to go after that force uh, rather than the Taffy 3 force that he was in the middle of attacking, now realizing that Taffy 3 was only a bunch of little escort carriers and not the big carrier task force that he had originally thought it was. Uh, Shima, when he investigated this situation, couldn't actually not find this message. This ghost message did not appear. So that... Uh, explanation for what happened at Leyte Gulf remains a mystery. Another piece of the uh, the Kurita puzzle is that you know Kurita lost control of his engagement. The flagship that he was on, the battleship Yamato, turned the wrong way, combing torpedoes, and. Uh, lost its uh, relative position vis-a-vis Taffy 3 and its ability to exert close control over the Japanese uh, surface fleet. Mm-hmm. So uh, from the moment that that happened, Kirita's conduct of the battle became sporadic and one explanation for what happened is that Kirita recalled the ships to reestablish his control over the fleet before making the next move. Mm-hmm. Um, so there are all different possibilities there, uh, and there isn't actually a um, 
you know, an authoritative answer to the question, to the puzzle of what happened to the Curita fleet at Tremor. Well, let's assume that Curita does disperse Taffy 3 and goes on to the transport fleet wreaking havoc there. That also puts him on the scene much longer than, than he was as Halsey has executed his turn and is coming back. Is there a negative outcome, perhaps, for Curita and the Japanese Central Force if it were drawn into the attack on the transports? Or would they have gotten clean away? Uh, yes, there is a negative outcome, absolutely. Uh, at the point where Third Fleet gets into airstrike range uh, of a Japanese surface force inside Leyte Gulf, uh, you can safely assume that most of Curita's fleet will be smashed. Mm-hmm. So, um, certainly uh, saving the Japanese surface fleet is one element in uh, uh, the Japanese admiral's concerns at this point. However, um, because the Japanese had gone into the battle with the idea that they weren't coming back from it, that the, we were, they were sacrificing the surface right. fleet, right. Uh, that's a, a lesser consideration, I think. Right. Unless perhaps Kurita still has that cognitive dissonance where he's still torn between committing... That's absolutely right, and he is. And the the existence, the persistence of that cognitive dissonance is uh, a major factor in uh, virtually every mistake the Japanese make in this battle. Right. Right. Although you could probably accuse, again... Aussie of the same cognitive dissonance with following through on his directive or perceived directive to chase down the Japanese fleet rather than remain in a supportive role. Well, that's exactly right. And as a matter of fact, I do this in this book. In Storm Over Leyte, I argue that uh, both fleets, both the Japanese and the American fleets uh, made a major mistake in the Battle of Leyte Gulf, and that both the Japanese and the Americans made the same mistake. And again, related quite possibly or quite likely to their doctrine, to their training, to, to their experience. Exactly. All these lessons throughout the war had been that, you know, the Japanese aircraft carriers are the key target because they have the capability to inflict the damage. So uh, always go for the carriers first. Mm-hmm. And he had, as you pointed out, a paragraph in his orders that said if he could engage the Japanese surface fleet or engage the Japanese fleet, he should do so. Mm-hmm. So he felt that he was on perfectly solid ground in doing that exact thing. Right. You know, there's still some contention, and it goes back to Samuel Elliott Morrison over just how truly decisive the Battle of Leyte Gulf was. What's your take on this? I think that the Battle of Leyte Gulf was decisive because uh, until Leyte Gulf, the Japanese had a major surface fleet. Right. Until uh, that surface fleet was, in one way or another, neutralized, uh, it was always going to be a factor in Allied calculations. And um, there were only two possibilities. One was to, uh, one was for the Japanese to come out and fight a battle at which they could be defeated. Uh, the other one was to make some kind of an, a concentrated attack on the Japanese would be sufficient to actually eliminate their naval force. Mm-hmm. If the Japanese had not committed their fleet at Leyte Gulf, uh, uh, those options would have remained live and the problem would have continued to be a live problem for the Allies. So in the sense that the Japanese came out and uh, were defeated at Leyte Gulf, that was that defeat was decisive. Mm-hmm. The other side of it, whether a Japanese victory at Leyte Gulf would have been decisive against the Americans, there I disagree. I do not think that um, the Japanese were capable of, of uh, uh, wiping out a sufficient portion of Allied naval assets to make a difference in the overall Allied offensive. Mm-hmm. And I also believe that uh, they could not have affected Allied amphibious 
transportation uh, capacity, assuming that they had, in fact, been able to carry out their new objective uh, enough to retard the Allied offensive uh, thrust in the Pacific. So on the Japanese side, I don't think they could have come out of Leyte with a decisive victory. On the American side, they very did. They very much did achieve a decisive victory. Right. Well, presuming, I mean, going into counterfactuals, perhaps presuming the Japanese Imperial fleet does not deploy, does not take the bait and go into um, an engagement at Leyte Gulf, is there at any point after? They take off where they would have made a difference? Or is this well, that was or? actually the argument in Tokyo in the fall of 1944. Mm-hmm. That was the argument, that if... Uh, uh, a Phil- if a Philippine invasion happens and we lose the, the transport lines to the southern resource area without the fleet being committed, um, you know, what purpose will there be anymore for the fleet? And the Japanese answered that question in the negative. There would not be any purpose for the fleet after that. So uh, the conclusion they drew from that is, well, then this is the logical moment to, to use the fleet. Mm-hmm. So they actually use that exact argument as uh, one more reason for doing what they actually did. Mm-hmm. Well, Josh, thank you for talking about the book. I really appreciate your 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 joining us. It's customary that we we end our interviews with our guests with two wrap up questions. Neither of them are all related to the current project. Um, first, I want to ask you, is there anything you're reading now that you would recommend to our listeners? <laughs> um, well, right now I am reading uh, a history of uh, British intelligence, which is a very interesting book. Um, uh, and, um, you know, uh, your readers are welcome uh, to take a look. What's, what's the title of the book, sir? It's called MI6, actually, by... Uh, uh, what is his name? Sacro, I think is his last name. Okay, okay. Um, second question is, what next project are you conceptualizing or contemplating now? Uh, I'm finishing a book about the CIA. Oh, oh my. Uh, from a, a comprehensive book, or is it focusing on its origins or any specific time frame? Actually, this book started out as it was going to be a new overview history of the agency, but uh, it, writing it in the middle of the controversy over the Senate torture report uh, kind of changed the direction of the book, and it is now uh, sort of inquiry into how the CIA has like uh, cut the bounds, the binds of um, accountability. How the CIA has escaped accountability. Mm. Well, thank you, John, for joining us to talk about your book. Uh, best well, it's my pleasure. Forward. Yeah, best of luck going forward with the new project. And for all of our listeners, this is your host, Bob Wintermute signing off for new books in military history. Thank you all for listening.